You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. Healthcare is an epic profit center. Your benefit advisor is a dinosaur walking dead if lacking this next-gen healthcare agenda. New Era Health Plans offer some blend of these. Okay, so really, really good in my book, and this is totally my opinion, are value-based insurance design, VBID it's known as. Why? Because they still deal with the administrative bloat that insurers demand, and I don't know that VBC is going to be around forever as they get capitated down to zero. That seems to be the logical solution, and that's where the industry has gone over the last 30 years. The better solution, I think, is reference-based pricing models and captive medical plans, captives they're known as, and next-gen association health plans that incorporate some of these next ideas that I think are the best. So I've told you good, better, now we're into the best category. Direct contracting with surgery, imaging, pharma, virtual primary care, direct primary care known as VPC, medical tourism for medications and for surgery, and high-performance centers of excellence, which is a Walmart pioneering. So I want to think of the latter five like a massive stimulus package for employees who pocket up to 8000 per year per employee versus old world care. That's every year they pocket that kind of money. So unlike federal government bumps one year only or federal stimulus packages for a few hundred bucks, these are multi-thousand dollar stimulus packages in their annual. They are very tasty donuts for that reason. This employer generated stimulus in a donut factory, $8,000. So that's a $130,000 mortgage for every employee that doesn't have to spend that $8,000. That's the average spend. That's also paying off most of the credit card debt in America because it's under 8,000 per family. That's also a savings account for the first time for a lot of employees because 56% of Americans cannot put together a thousand in savings, much less 8,000 in savings. So ask your best people if they've ever had a savings account and you'll be surprised by your answer. Ask them if they ever had a vacation somewhere nice, you'll be surprised by the answer. Ask your under $20 an hour, 56%, if they've ever thought about paying off credit card debt and you will be surprised by the answer. It's better than a donut factory for us employers. We would love to have double or triple or 10X sales to squeeze easy money margins like this baked into our benefits. This is chocolate magma in a cake that nobody thinks about. It's the golden ticket in a chocolate bar. The 2020s is going to be an era of heroes coming from HR and finance because 90% of the CEOs are still asleep at the wheel. We will awaken. I'm a CEO that did two years ago. We are awakening. The bigs are being told by their best customers that they've got maybe three years and then they are outie. This is happening weekly with very large employers around the country and it's going to soon be a daily occurrence, I believe. For my small company, this is not only a chocolate magma cake in a donut factory, it's radically changed our culture, and that's another show. Our next guest needs no introduction. Dr. Eric Bricker is known for his A Healthcare Z as an epic performer in front of a whiteboard talking about subjects everybody should know something about and we all know nothing about. 
and he dives deep and he dives interestingly and he's quite entertaining. If you go on LinkedIn, you'll see A Healthcare Z, hundreds and hundreds of videos, and you will learn something, I guarantee you, each one. Welcome to the show, Eric Bricker. Hey, Ron, thanks so much for having me. Good. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. We only have a half hour to talk about it. So my interest in creating primary care cures is to figure out what is it that is the grand fix for primary care? Because once we fix the backbone, it seems like the rest of it should be uh, able to work itself out. So I'm at a direct primary care conference. Health Rosetta is promoting a lot of interesting ideas. What ideas do you see out in the marketplace with your sort of 20,000 foot view of the, of the market that could be the grand fix if there is one for primary care and ultimately healthcare? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. And you're right, that primary care really is the backbone of really improved health and improved healthcare for companies and employees and their family members. And I actually want to, want to take you to the Intermountain Healthcare System, which of course is very famous. Most people in America are aware of how Intermountain and Geisinger and some of these other healthcare uh, systems are incredibly innovative. One of the things that makes them so innovative is that they have the correct financial alignment because the Intermountain Health System runs its own health insurance company. So they collect premium from people in the Salt Lake City, Utah area, and then they provide care for that, those same uh, members. Likewise does Geisinger. Now it's not all they do, right? So they have patients coming in who don't have Intermountain Healthcare Insurance, but they have that coming in. Okay, so what does that have to do with primary care? Their sort of head of innovation at Intermountain said that, listen, we realized a few years ago that Intermountain Healthcare doesn't want one health system, it runs two health systems. We run a health system of primary care and we run a health system of specialty care, like orthopedic surgeons and ophthalmologists. And primary care physicians have a very different way of seeing patients and a very different agenda than your ophthalmologist or your orthopedic surgeon. So the primary care physician is really trying to keep people healthy. They're trying to prevent disease. A hospitalization is seen as a failure, not as a success. Whereas the orthopedist or the ophthalmologist, they are you know, much more quote unquote transaction related. You have a broken bone that needs to be pinned. You have a detached retina that needs to be reattached. And so the way that the physicians in each of those areas is compensated accordingly needs to be very different. And at a very basic level, it means that those specialist physicians, maybe it makes sense for them to be paid on a fee for service basis. But for the primary care physicians, sometimes if they're really doing a great job, the patient would see the, the primary care physician even less so if, if the primary care physician is being paid on a fee-for-service basis, that actually doesn't create the right uh, incentives. And so even within Intermountain, they're trying to create the right type of environment where the primary care physicians are incentivized one way and the specialists are another way. Okay, the other way that they run two health systems is that the orthopedist kind of functions on their own and does their own thing, whereas the primary care physician needs to work as a team. Right? I mean, it's one of the reasons that I'm an internist, I'm an internal medicine physician because I love treating the entire person, not just one particular organ. And so they realized that they needed to treat the entire person in those primary care clinics for Intermountain. So what did they do? They put counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists in the offices with the primary care physicians because if you're depressed or if you have anxiety, if you can't think straight because of some sort of mental illness, 
you're going to have a really hard time taking care of yourself or even following directions about, you know, which medication to take when if you're in the fog of depression. And so they've incorporated, and you also need care coordination services and you need dietitians and you need, so you need all of these things working together as a team in the primary care setting. So it's the correct financial incentives and the team-based approach that really need to be their sort of own unique sort of system within a system within our mountain. Okay. That brings us to direct primary care. What direct primary care does is it essentially replicates that exact same scenario at the employer specific level. So this is where the employer is going to pay like a subscription to a primary care physician or a group of primary care physicians. And the patients are gonna be able to see them like an unlimited amount. Maybe they maybe it makes sense to get on a phone call. Maybe it's sense to do an email. Maybe it's sense to come in and actually do a visit in the office. Who knows? There's gonna be some situations where you might want to have them come in and you might not. That's totally okay because the physician is financially aligned. They're going to get paid the same amount every month regardless of how many visits that they have come in. And so that's, the, that's one. That's the, that's the sort of you know, financial you know, model that sort of aligns incentives. And then two, those primary care physicians. Now, I, I will tell you that I have seen this firsthand because when I did my residency training at Johns Hopkins, guess what? All the physicians there, not just the not just the primary care physicians, but also the specialists, they're all on salary. And so one of the primary concerns about having a physician on salary is that they're just going to drag their feet or be lazy or not treat the patients as much as maybe they should be treated or they will under-treat them, right? It's the opposite problem of fee-for-service of over-treatment. And I will tell you that, by and large, I did not see that. And I would think that if you talk to other people that have experienced direct primary care, they will tell you that they did not see that either because we really took the Hippocratic oath to do what's best for the patient and the patient comes first. And for those clinics that then set up additional metrics around whether it be a certain degree of outcomes or even hemoglobin A1C for a diabetic, if you put the patient first and do what's best for the patient first, that in the long run, that absolutely will turn out into the best financial performance for that patient as well. And I'm going to add one final component as to what the primary care, uh, the DPC model does, is it allows then when that specialty care is needed, it allows, not in a forced gatekeeper HMO fashion, but it allows that primary care physician to direct the member to the specialist and to the facility that is going to be high quality and cost effective because many primary care physician groups that are owned by hospital systems today are used as a referral source for the exact opposite purpose. They're using those primary care physicians as a funnel to bring people into the quote unquote highly reimbursed service lines at the hospital. A highly reimbursed service line might be like cardiovascular services because they get paid $8,000 for every stress test. So they have people coming into the primary care physicians so that they can be referred over to the cardiologist so they can get their $8,000 stress test. So there the financial incentives are not aligned necessarily in the correct fashion, but in a DPC model where there is no financial connection between that PCP's referral and the specialist that they're going to, then they're really going to do what's best for the patient and not just something that's going to, quote unquote, increase patient volume for a highly compensated service line. So I'm just going to pause there <laughs> and maybe we just all digest that a little bit. Okay. That, there's just about 27 things to take apart. Let me just tell you my first thought is we've had a lot of interesting people on this show and Dr. Clint Flanagan in Colorado 
has hired 60 DPC docs that have come on board. He's got a couple of NPs. He's got a naturopath in Boulder because it fits the market there. He's got one or two PAs, but it's mostly family doctors because of their scope of practice. He's hired one hospitalist in the last 10 years. And I asked why, and he said, think about how deep they go with the patient. They're not, they're almost like an urgent care relationship. They don't have the full scope that you as an internal medicine doc would have. It's a relationship with your own practice. So uh, this show is not about knocking hospitalists or knocking hospitals or knocking big anything, but how do you feel about a hospitalist? This gentleman who's been on our show that's the largest DPC in the country uh, is knocking hospitalists just because of their scope and because of their training. And they don't know the community. They're not endemic. Uh, they're not embedded in the community. How do you feel about hospitalists getting into back into primary care again in the community? Is that going to be a problem for them? So this is a great question. I have some firsthand knowledge about this as well because I actually uh, used to practice as a hospitalist. So after I was done with my internal medicine residency, I worked as a hospitalist. And I would say that if you come out as a general internist, that becoming a hospitalist is probably the, the main direction that most people go in terms of their employment. Now, here is the challenge, here's the good and the bad of a hospitalist physician, is that a hospitalist physician is great in that they are there to be able to see the patient because when people are in the hospital, they're there typically because they're sick. And guess what? Their clinical situation can change in the blink of an eye. And you will have people decompensate on the floor very quickly. And in the old model where the doctor was in the clinic, either across the sky bridge or across the street or across town from the hospital, their ability to address that patient's decompensation in the hospital rapidly is compromised. You can't do it. But if you're there, you can see them. Right? One of the worst things I would ever hear a nurse say to me on the phone, they would page me and they say, Dr. Bricker, so-and-so just doesn't look right. And anytime a nurse has like a sixth sense about a, nurse, a patient not looking right, I would get run to the bedside because it, it obviously, typically meant something was very wrong with them, but the nurse just couldn't put their finger on it. Right? So that, that is absolutely one of the positive things about a hospitalist. Now, again, the negative thing about the hospitalist is the financial incentive. So, so hospitalists will bill for patient visits almost in a similar fashion to what an outpatient primary care physician would do, right? So you have like 99201. I mean, you bill CPT codes for visits of varying level to various levels of complexity, uh, one through five depending upon the amount of time, the problem list, yada, yada, yada. Okay, so those are the professional fees for the hospitalist. Now, hospitalist groups will typically also be paid a stipend by the hospital in addition to their professional fees that they bill out to Medicare, Medicaid, Blue Cross, United States, blah, blah, blah. Okay, in certain situations, in talking to my hospitalist peers, that stipend from the hospital is contingent upon various metrics. It could be patient satisfaction metrics. It could be volume of tests or procedures ordered metrics. Therefore, there is a connection between the compensation paid to the hospitalist and the amount of stuff they order in the hospital. Okay, I'm not saying it happens all the time. I'm not saying it happens a lot. I'm not saying it happens a little. I don't know exactly how often it happens, but from anecdotally, from the hospitalist that I talked to, it absolutely does happen. So I think the matter is, in my opinion, the matter is not whether a hospitalist is or is not good for the patient relationship. I think if it's financially aligned correctly, it can be fantastic. But in certain situations, it can be uh, arranged in a way that's not necessarily in the best interest of the patient. My son and daughter-in-law were at Brigham Women's the last three years. He's now doing his fellowship in GI, and she's an entrepreneur starting a company in uh, New York City. 
and they're both taking a little different path, but there was literally no incentive for them to run unnecessary tests. There was no incentive for them to order procedures that were extra. There was no coaching on that, in other words. And the only reason they ordered extra tests, for example, and you didn't bring this up, is because sometimes a referring physician said, I want this done, and they said to themselves, really? You know, he knows he doesn't need that, and we know that he doesn't need that, but we'll do, we don't want to upset the relationship. Or a patient will come in the door and say, a WebMD tells me I need to order these three tests, and you're the, my son is going, please. You know, <laughs> WebMD is not your authoritative social as me, but I'm not going to fight you because it's a lot easier to just go with City Hall than fight City Hall. And the third reason is to cover his rear end, right? Because they always teach them that. You can't over you can't over order tests. But in terms of doing procedures that were necessary, skipping days, like we learned heard today about if you're doing an endoscopy ever, you go day one, you do it second day, you know, and then you, you can bill it two different days and get a higher reimbursement. They never coached them on that kind of stuff. And I doubt that many people are getting coached on that until they go maybe into a private practice or a group. But uh, so I, I'm not trying to demonize physicians. We both know they're in the, in the power play game, the least powerful group at the Thanksgiving table. They don't get to, uh, they don't get much of this, but the scraps of these big bills that get passed. Let's talk about it. If you could eliminate medical tests, um, I have a theory that if we had some sort of an artificial intelligence ordering system that you had to check with before you ordered a test, that would pretty much obviate the need to not have an x-ray when it's a, done, a dumb thing or a, an ultrasound when it's a dumb thing, um, or even a CT scan. You, you just There's ways to um, have a maybe a second opinion on whether you really mm -hmm. need that test. Yeah. Do you think anything like that is in our future? So it's a, it's a great question. Um, the short answer is yes. And to a certain extent, it's already being done. So in most electronic medical record systems and what's called physician order entry or POE, there is some degree of what's also referred to as decision support, right? In healthcare, we have to have all this jargon, right? So there's a couple pieces of jargon here, okay? Now that decision support, when I started in medical school in the year 2000, that was there. And at the University of Illinois, where I went to medical school, they actually had an electronic medical record and they actually had it in place for several years. It was a Cerner system in 2000. So I actually, I've grown up with an EMR. I've, I've, I've worked in hospitals that did not have them, but I kind of grew up with it, okay? And they had decision support around things like making sure your, uh, your patients had stool softeners if they were put on uh, narcotic medication because narcotics, they slow down your bowels, they cause constipation, so they would want you to, to put you on a stool softener at the same time so that you wouldn't get all blocked up. It's sort of the bane of existence in the hospital is constipation. Okay, fine. That type of um, decision support has been there for two decades. Is there an opportunity to make it much more sophisticated? Of course. Now, I will say at the same time that there are things you can do within the EMR that are much less sophisticated that they have already done that are highly effective. And I will tell you one that they did at Johns Hopkins. What they did in the physician order entry system is they put the price, and they didn't do it for all labs, but they did it for routine blood work. So like a CBC for your red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets, for what's called a BMP or basic metabolic panel, which is like your sodium, potassium, chloride, creatinine, BUN. They did it for a handful of other ones, and they put the amount of money that each one of those tests cost next to where you would click the button to order it. And guess what they found? These are residents. You know, they're getting paid $45,000 a year no matter what. There's no change whatsoever. Okay? There is no recourse to them at all. They're not going to get kicked out of their residency program. They're not going to get a bonus. They're not going to get their pay doc. Right? And they found that the residents automatically ordered 
fewer blood tests. And one of the common things to do is you order a BMP instead of a CMP. So a comprehensive metabolic panel is I think like 14 lab values and a basic one is only, it's only like seven lab values. So it's like seven less lab values. It's a lot less money. You know, let's say a CMP might be like 110 bucks and a BMP might only be like 17. And they found that they self-selected the BMPs over the CMPs just when they were showing the price. And they also just ordered the, all the, you know, the CBCs and the blood tests and all that just less frequently when they were showing the price. And all they had to do was put the money up there. So that's not even artificial intelligence. He was that's shielded. Just, that's he was just shielded. like, yeah, He was know, shielded from the price. He was not even allowed to see what things cost. Not because it's a cost factor. They just don't want them thinking about money when they're ordering uh, on behalf of their patients. They wanted to do the right thing regardless. Yeah, and, it, and it's and, and actually, you know, so we had Dr. Martin McCary talk here at the conference, and Maryland is such an interesting place because that um, would not have any financial uh, repercussions for what the hospital was even paid because Maryland is like the only state that has state regulation of what the insurance reimbursements to hospitals are. Mm -hmm. So the hospitals can't negotiate their rates like the state commission tells the hospitals in Maryland. So there's so much control that in Maryland, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't impacting what the hospital was getting paid at all. And it was just a little experiment. I think they only did it in the Department of Medicine. But I think that it just shows that uh, you know, obviously there's been a lot written about nudges, right? And so depending upon what your quote unquote incentives are, you can be nudged in the direction of increasing healthcare costs, or you can be nudged in the, in, in the direction of decreasing healthcare costs. And depending on which side of the fence you're sitting on, you might want one of those opposing nudges to occur. So Eric, I started this show with the idea of Sherlock Holming, the problem of the comprehensive solution to healthcare. There's gotta be some kind of a fix that takes care of the patient, the employer, and the doctor. So the employer being the funder, the doctor and the patient exam being the sacred tenant of which all healthcare is based. And the employer-employee relationship is a sacred one too. We're gonna to get you in the nest and protect you from financial ruin. We're gonna protect you from medical ruin. And those, those promises have been shattered, but we're building them back very slowly with DPC. I had a conversation with Chris Crow, another speaker of ours sure. today. Chris is the largest ACO in North Texas. He's uh, along with Village MD, one of the two biggest in Texas uh, with five fields was a future guest on our show. And the question I asked him was, how do you feel about DPC and are you ever gonna go into that business? And he said, well, the problem is there's not enough PCPs. We already have a shortage and we're taking a panel from 2,600 to 600. And what was told to me by Paul Thomas, who's our first DPC mm -hmm. guest I ever had yeah. uh, at Plum Health, Paul said, Ron, it's not what you think it is. The numbers aren't, which, how many PCPs are in America? And I said, well, there's 350,000. He goes, what about extenders? I go, oh, okay, maybe 505,000. And he goes, so what, what's 505,000 times 600, our size of a panel? I said, well, that's about 300 million. He goes, how many people live in America? And I <laughs> right. went, okay, you got me there, buddy. Right. And he goes, we don't have a problem. We have an efficiency problem. Right. Because somebody's typing for 20 minutes into something and talking eyeball to eyeball for seven, that's an efficiency problem. Right. They don't need to be seeing 26 people. Right. That's just a game they're playing because they're pleasing the overlords. Yeah. So he had a good, pretty good point. What do you think of that point he made? So listen, and there are, I, and I, I believe there are, and it's probably at the state level, about you know, laws around who can actually enter the information into the EMR. And so I think to a certain extent, it's either mandated, whether it's by hospital policy or by the state, that it's the physician that has to directly enter that information. But you know, many people have said before that electronic medical records are actually just 
billing systems in disguise. And so you have essentially turned a physician into a, you know, I don't want to call them a medical coder. I mean, medical coders are wonderful people. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that you're giving physicians responsibility because you can, that is taking away their time from what they should be doing in terms of the physical exam or the history or the review of systems. And so in my opinion, I have absolutely seen medical transcriptionists work in conjunction, side by side. They're basically the physician's shadow. And I saw this at a dermatology office in uh, Baltimore. And the physician didn't even write her own prescriptions because the it, it was a nurse and she is the transcriptionist would just write down everything in the chart that the physician said so that they would document it in the chart and it would write all the prescriptions for the person as well. And they could see that patient in about 15 minutes. And in that 15 minutes, they spent like 14 minutes talking to the patient and doing an exam and no time on the EMR. So PCP, depending on PD all the way up to internal medicine, is going to make 60 to 80 bucks an hour in Texas. If you have a $20 an hour scribe following you around everywhere, you just took a pay cut. Now you can be more efficient theoretically, but scribes are a little too expensive for primary care today. Now maybe we'll have virtual scribes and somebody in the Philippines will be typing simultaneously, but that's a little ways off. We're, we're not quite there yet. Let's talk about another interesting problem. I just started thinking about this the last couple of weeks. Everybody that's around to primary care visit, let's call them MAs, been a medical assistant. Mm -hmm. I looked at the, the list of people that I see in a typical primary care office, and I've been in 800 of them in my career. I see a front desk transaction. I, she's taking, she gave me a clipboard. I have a, somebody that's taking my payment. That's a different transaction. I've got a triage nurse. She's actually into care. She's getting my blood pressure and she's moving me. I've got um, an outtake. Here's your copay. Then I have a whole bunch of people I never see behind there, like a practice manager, a biller coder, a collector. Um, we have scrubbers on the insurance side. We have payment clerks. We have people that, log, that sue us to try to get their money back. We have uh, clerks that are about recoupments. There's a whole series of 12 to 14 people on each PCP visit. And I looked at the math and an independent doctor makes 25 cents on the dollar of that, of that visit. If they work for a hospital, it's closer to 8% because there's a lot more money involved. So. 25 cents on the dollar goes to the bottom line of that doctor versus all of this team that he has to pay, mm -hmm. almost all of which are transaction clerks. And yet we send these MAs to school and they're learning phlebotomy and medical terms they never get to use because mm -hmm. they're now into the, they're really transaction assistants, mm -hmm. not medical assistants. Yep, that's right. It's almost like a bait and switch that we're doing on 500,000 people that are right in the heat of battle of this system. Yeah, and I will tell you that in, you know, over the years when I talked to you know, older uh, primary care physicians, of course, they're the ones, they were the ones that told me to never go into medicine. I don't have any doctors in my family, but every single doctor I talked to said, whatever you do, don't go into medicine. And this was in the 90s when quote unquote managed care was ruining it. And if anything, it's gotten worse since then. And that's why I went and worked as a hospital finance consultant for two years before going into medical school because I wanted to see firsthand, you know, what is this bureaucracy uh, and paperwork requirement or headache that's causing physicians to not like their job so much. And I think one of the big differences is that in, I don't know, the last five, 10, maybe 15 years, I think most people when they go into medical school and especially when they go into primary care, they kind of go in eyes wide open with the expectation of that's kind of how it is. And typically there is a, a higher, and I wrote about this in my book, where there's really a hierarchy of physician specialties based upon your USMLE step one and step two scores. So those are the standardized tests that you take in medical school. The higher you score on that USMLE score, then you can get into a more highly paid specialty like orthopedic surgery or dermatology or ENT. And so that oftentimes the people who 
who go into primary care are either one, they just have a passion about it for some sort of personal reason. They were, they were the child of a family practice doctor. They came from a small town, so they saw that the, the, the difference that a primary care physician could make in the lives of a community, or because they didn't score very well in their tests or because they were a foreign medical grad, right? Because there's about twice as many residency spots every year as there are graduates from US medical schools. So there's always 50, almost 50% of the residency positions that need to be filled by FMGs, foreign medical grads. And typically those are primary care uh, uh, residency positions. And the hospitals and the residency programs, they have to fill them because they use them as a cheap labor source. And so, it is often, I don't want to say all the times, but sometimes it, you know, people go into primary care as sort of, uh, I don't want to call it the path least resistance, it's sort of the plan B or the plan C. And it doesn't have to be that way, and it shouldn't be that way. And in every specialty, including primary care, there is such a bell-shaped curve in terms of competency and expertise that are there primary care physicians that do not know what they are doing? Yes, absolutely. At the other end of the spectrum, there are fantastic primary care physicians. But the, the direct primary care model allows for at least the environment for as many of those, let's just call them like the, the middle 60% of primary care physicians, to at least put them into, in an environment where they can thrive with their competency. Because if you put a, a let's just call it a 50 percenter in that very complex environment that you just described, like it might be kind of hard for them to succeed clinically in order to be able to spot that swelling in the leg that's actually a blood clot or a DVT that might turn into a pulmonary embolism and sudden death, right? They might be distracted from being able to actually see that. But if you put them in the right environment, they're better apt to clinically succeed. So I would say that to, you know, money aside, forget about the money, the direct primary care model, if anything, is just going to be able to allow the clinical skills of the majority of primary care physicians to come to fruition, to actually do what it's supposed to do. Whereas right now, for the reasons that you described, they're really handicapped in ways where, yes, can some people be successful at it? Yeah, but they're really your superstars. So maybe you're like one out of 10 primary care physicians that can actually spin eight plates at a time and pull it off. But that's unrealistic to think that most people are going to be able to do that. Well, to your point, Eric, my, so again, I'm referring back to my son and daughter-in-law. They both, she's Harvard and he's Pritzker. So top 5% tier schools. I asked how many of the 200 graduates from their medical school were going on to something beyond primary care. And they said all of them, but two or three. So basically two or three out of a top tier school are going into the PCP world. And then I was treated by a dermatologist uh, about 10 days ago. And I asked, and she's in a bottom tier school. And I'm not proud, it's from my hometown. I said, how many of your graduates out of 200, and she had a pretty big graduating class, went on to primary care versus specialty? Like you, you're a dermatologist, that's like a choice spot. And she said, most of them had to go into primary care. So what do you mean had to? And she goes, they could get the specialty slots. Every, all the better mm -hmm. students get them first. Mm -hmm. So what you, to your point, we're not getting the best and brightest going into primary care, that's the default. What a sad thing. You know, I, I talked to, Atlas MD, my friend uh, Josh Umber, who's been on the show, and Kirk Umber, and they have rotations that go through their practice. Now, they're a mature DPC, so they have a lot of services that are for free. They have cryogenics and DEXA scans. It's all free, and it's just because they pay for the equipment, and it's a service they want to provide, and they're always thinking of what now can we add that would be valuable. So, super cool practice, 50 bucks a month. Kids are like 10 bucks a month. It's ridiculous. It wouldn't work in Houston, Texas, and it may not work where you live, but by doing rotations there, he's got a ready pool of DPC ready graduates that are ready yep. to go because they see a sweet thing. Yep. 
it's a lovely life. Yeah. Do, do you think burnout could go away if, let's just live in the world of fantasy for a minute. Do you think burnout would go away if everybody was a DPC seeing six patients a day? You know, and I, I think that you bring up a very good point, obviously. And listen, I'm a, I'm a fan, you know, PAs and nurse practitioners that actually have sort of script writing ability, they hate to be called physician extenders or mid-levels. You know, you know, if yeah. I was them, I would hate too. Yeah. You know, bell-shaped curve. There are people that are really good at what they do and, and, and they can be highly effective. And then there are ones that are not as good, right? But to your point around, and the previous gentleman's point around there being not enough of these doctors to go into primary care, I think that's where you get them from. I think you could get them from the residency programs. And there's a lot uh, in the medical schools and they could see a career of leaving medical school and going into a residency program in family medicine or internal medicine or pediatrics with the end goal of being a DPC physician, kind of like what big companies do now and sending people for their MBA. It's like, go, we'll pay for your MBA, come back in a few years and you've got to work for us because we sent you that. You know, same thing, you got to go to that family practice residency and then come back and do DPC for us. And I think you would get a lot of residents and a lot of medical students who would be interested because, in my opinion, the lifestyle is right. And what I mean by lifestyle, I mean, I, it's not a general term. It means sleep deprivation from not being able to sleep at night, very specifically. It means having to work weekends and having to work holidays. It's overnight weekends and holidays. I mean, my friends in their 40s, sort of prime physicians in their career, they are, you know, that work various specialties. They are working. I got one buddy who works three weekends a month. He gets one weekend a month. The other ones are getting, they have to work one weekend a month. And the other folks are working two out of the four weekends a month. So you're working a lot of weekends. They, you know, one of my buddies said that he got Christmas off this year for the first time in five years. Like it, it ain't gonna happen, okay? And again, he's in his 40s. He's not the junior partner in his practice. And the other thing you have to do is you have to set out your schedule in a lottery system. My buddies that are anesthesiologists, they have scheduled lotteries for the year and your days off are set for the year. Mm -hmm. And you can do some trading, yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, especially if you have a family, it's really hard to set your schedule for the year in advance of when you're working and when you're not working. So if you could do that through a DPC career, I think that would be highly attractive. Um, well, I promised you a half hour. We can do a second show if you have another time uh, and do this another time. But we're gonna go ahead and close this show out. I always like to ask my guests my stumper question they're not prepared for. If you could fly a banner over America, what would that banner say? Love each other. <laughs> I love it. Okay. You can't close better than love each other, folks. So thank you, Eric Bricker. We'll look forward to our next show together as soon as possible. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Ron. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.